0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Bug Eye's Rock Pop Rambles. This is episode 31. I'm your host Angela Martin and this week my co-host is...
1: Paula from the band Bug Eye. Hey, hey, hey. And this is take three, third time Lucky. Do we have two tracks running? We do. I am recording Excellent. two tracks this time.
0: Uh, for those that are, have maybe just stumbled across our ramble of a podcast, uh, Rock Pop Rambles is a weekly show run by uh, the band, brought to you even, by the band Bug Eye. And there's only other two of us on the show each week because we just never ever be able to edit down the four of us rambling over the top of each other so uh yeah each week the show is themed we come armed with some new music and the theme of each show normally talks about music from the world well not music but stories from the world of rock pop rambles
1: in the loosest sense <laughs> we have to say in yeah, the loosest sense yeah we kind
0: of we kind of go off that we've had themed shows of top 10s and uh protest songs, as well as telling stories of, of
1: artists. And Cynthia Plastercaster.
0: Yeah. Is that your favourite show? Because I think you always refer back to that one.
1: I, I just genuinely, I'd never heard of her really? until Kerry covered it. Not not at all. I'd and heard- it is one of those kind of sort of rock legend things that you think, is that actually true? Or or is it like, you know, Freddie Star swallowed my hamster kind of story?
0: No, no, totally, totally true. Look, I'd heard of her, but not, mm. like I didn't know any of the details really of it. Although I'm saying that now and it's just, you know, when you think, did I actually know that? Or do I think I know it now? Yeah. I mean Which has brought the dates. Which is the point of this show actually. You think you know bands and artists or you've heard a vague story. So we dig into those a little bit and do the reading so you don't have to. And yeah, I suppose I should crack on with and also you'll notice I say the word suppose a lot on this. And podcast. Also, so I need to actually do that thing of putting a suppose jar on the desk. And every time I say suppose, I need to put some money in the jar.
2: You'll be rich.
0: Although I need a card machine, really, because with COVID, I'm not really getting, you know, no one. You're frowned upon, actually, if you try and hand someone some cash. It's true. These days. Do
1: you remember when we went to the arcade and we were like, we haven't had cash in about six months? It felt so unnecessary. It did. Do you reckon they could get those little tap machines for the two piece thoughts?
0: Well, yeah, I don't know why they. Well, they what they could do is you could tap and just get like they don't need to be like actual currency coins, do they? They could just be
1: coins. Yeah, but they'd still be full of people's germs. It kind of like it's many people touching it. That's the issue, right? Yeah. Mm, yeah. So anyway, Angela, how have you been?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've I've been I've been all right. This week's been a bit. um, Though I say this week, it's only Monday. But uh, that's just enough for me. I've had enough. I, w- I want it to be the weekend already. Although world, the world just seems to, like my world, and I'm sure many other people's, just seems to be on some sort of weird cycle thing. I was always someone that planned stuff way in advance. Yep. I, 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 You know what? I had my holidays booked for mm-hmm. like a good year in advance. I would have the band's tour. I would know what theatre shows I was going to. I was always a planner and always kind of doing, I well, am still always doing stuff, but I don't know. I just, um, it's. I'm, I'm, I have moments of not feeling great about the situation, I have to say. But um, although on the plus, I always get a seat.
1: There is that. And I'm quite liking the table service. I mean, maybe I'm just a bit of a lazy person, I've, but I'm I've quite enjoying the table always service.
0: Always hated standing in really, really tight. Like, I'm not like a massive crowd fan, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Um, but yeah, like being packed into a pub and fighting to get to the bar. I don't think anyone it's all just really a likes long, that, really, isn't it? is it? But um, yeah. So uh, yeah, the only good, th- well, I'm not going to say the only good thing to come out of COVID. I think there's been lots of things, actually. I think appreciating people.
1: Yeah. Or- and small things.
0: And, yeah, and small things. I think we've, a lot of people became really, like, selfish, disinterested arseholes about a lot of
1: things. Home-cooked really. dinners. That's another brilliant thing about Corona. Yeah.
0: Brilliant.
1: well, Yeah. There we go. I mean, I've made some interesting recipes. I won't go into them here, but maybe I'm going to release my Corona lockdown cookbook. Yeah. Another, another, another podcast. Another podcast. Brilliant. Another brilliant. podcast. Anyway, should we crack on? What's right. this podcast about then, Angela? So,
0: the theme of the show... This year, and we were toying... toying this, year. this year. fucking hell. <laughs> oh Giving it God. away there. Sometimes it feels like we've been recording these shows for like about a year long. But um, no, the theme of the show this night, tonight, this week... There get you it go, right. she got there. Yeah, got there in the end. Is the year 1983. And why is it 1983, Paula? Because
1: 1983 was an absolute cracking year for music. It is
0: hailed as the most important year... Of music in the eighties, in fact, in the, um, the 80s. in the whole of the eighties, in the whole of the eighties, and not until Britpop did we see another great year like this. Apparently, um, it was it was the year that basically would launch the future careers, the future career would launch the careers of future legends. Um, there you go. So a lot of lot of great debut albums there, um, e- including even Guinness World Record breakers, and just. Every kind of huge artist you could imagine was putting out records at that time. So you know there were a lot in the mix, of say established artists and debut artists, and a lot of like experimentation mm-hmm. and just really exciting music. I mean, some of the debut albums. So for example, REM, Lerma, yep. that came out that year. Tears for Fears, The Hurting. Violent Femmes, self-titled Violent Femmes, and it was um, Wham's debut album came out that year as well. Fantastic. There's, there's more albums than that. It wasn't just those.
1: but No, there were some really great albums. Because even going through the list of things that were put out in this year, I was like, wow, there's so much to choose from. I could choose like 100 artists here and we could have like a year-long podcast. So, so many classic albums. And it was also the year, doing this
0: research, I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole. But I have since like gone in the garden, burnt my notes. I didn't quite do that. But um, I did go down a rabbit hole. But I'll, I'll tell them. you... The most interesting points of that rabbit hole um it was also the year that the compilation series called now that 's what I call Music was launched the wow. very first one just in time for Christmas, and it went to number one for ten weeks or something like ten that ten weeks ten That's weeks
1: amazing
0: um there, there was a whole bunch of like spin-off compilation mm. albums that would come later down the line with that and I mean essentially for those that don't know what now I call music is, I mean, I think they're at night now, that's what I call music, 1 billion and 1 or something. There's been so many. But this was the first one. It featured 30 hit singles. And, okay, it wasn't a new idea. It wasn't mm-hmm. the first time a compilation had been created and put out, but it was the first time that two major labels um, collaborated on doing this, and that was Virgin and EMI, and Universal would join join later. So, um yeah. And,
1: and thus, starting everyone's Christmas wish list. Wow! Well, I no, always but, wanted that for Christmas.
0: Well, exactly. It was. It actually became a really important mm-hmm. album in its in itself. And yeah. you know, even if you weren't a fan of all the tracks on there, for a lot of people, it was like a more cost effective way of of discovering and buying. Like if you were into pop music, I know there was all the sort of fanzine stuff and the underground music that was doing things with tape swaps and stuff like that. But I think in the world of pop, this was the most economical way for for a lot of people to discover music that they wouldn't normally have listened to if it wasn't like necessarily their cup
1: of tea and to I begin think, with. I think to be fair as well, for parents, like, it was the most economical way to buy the kind of the hit singles for their kids.
0: Exactly. And that's what I always
1: associate yeah. now. That's what I call music with.
0: I loved those. And then they did go quite Shit. But the thing is, the reason why I liked them is because you actually had quite a mix of genres on there, which mm-hmm. I don't, I think it just all went a bit poppy too, poppy.
1: Well, also, probably. I show my age. Or your music taste changed as well. Yeah.
0: But do you know where the name came from? Now that's mm, what I call music. Nope. Okay, so the name came from a 1920s advertising poster, The Danish Bacon, featuring a pig saying, Now that's what I call music, as he listened to a chicken singing.
1: I'm finding this quite hard to picture. Well, and it was a poster Now that's what I call music, not now that's what I call bacon. That's what I was expecting you
0: to say. No, now that's what I call music. And it was a pig listening to a chicken singing. And Richard Branson, now Sir Richard Branson, Mm -hmm. um, bought the poster um, as a kind of amusing thing for his cousin who worked at Virgin and sort of pinned it behind his desk and wrote some funny comment underneath it. And and the pig actually became um, a mascot for that, that record, for that, those compilation albums, for the early day ones, and it makes a reappearance on the cover of the Now That's What I Call Music 100 that came out in 2018.
1: I'm going to have a look at those. You should.
0: So that year also, but I promise I'm not going to talk about this one, Michael Jackson's Thriller was released in 1983. Yep. Absolute classic, great video, Thankfully I'm not drunk because I normally go off on a Michael Jackson ramp when that happens. Yep. Um, but it was also the year that the Eurythmics had their second album, Sweet Dreams. And that was the album that was actually the game changer for mm-hmm. their career. Mm-hmm. They they, you know, they were doing interesting stuff before that, but this was the critical turning point for them that gave them commercial success and would see them release a further six albums after that point and generate like an estimated 75 million record sales, or something like that. Madness. So, needless to say, there's plenty to talk about um, from 1983. But the album I'll be talking about in a bit that I've decided to explore is from the world of pop. Um, I'm going to be talking about a debut album that was called Deep Sea Skyving by the one, the only Banana Rama. Wow. And which album have you picked?
1: Well, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but strangely enough, I've also gone to the world of pop for my my album, and it's also a debut album, by someone who's gone on to become quite well-known. It's Madonna's self-titled debut album. Oh, this is... A, this popped up. We should be having a little disco. Maybe. We'll get the disco balls out later, oh. and the lights. <laughs> Who have you gone for for a single?
0: So, for a single, I now need to look back at my notes, because there were so, so many... Um, who did I pick in the end? I've gone for, um, I've already mentioned
1: them, the Eurythmics with Sweet Dreams Are Made of. Oh, total this. classic.
0: Amazing song.
1: And likewise, I've gone for a total classic and I'm going to be having a little jabber about New Order and Blue Monday. <sighs> Superb choice.
0: See, I tried, I tried to think what would Paula pick? <laughs> but then the list was so extensive of songs; I know. it could have gone anywhere. It could have gone anywhere, and I, I just, yeah, I had to. I, I don't know. I, I could have done. I do really want to do Annie Lennox at some point, so I thought I need to save like any kind of in depth,
1: yeah,
0: Euro stuff to to till then the legend, to um, the legend show. Yeah, so we've got some new music this week. I'm going to be playing um, Hall of Mirrors by Crosswires and um,
1: Paula. I'll be playing Elo. B E by a band called Kitten. Should we kick off with them? Yeah. Actually? Let's go for it. Okay. was Kin with L-O-V-E and I chose that track I think it's like really well written and really like I feel that there's a lot of thought that's gone into it there's a lot of space for the way for you to hear everything and yeah I really enjoyed it I quite like the sort of poppy
0: nature of it I really love like songs that have believe it or not hand claps in hand claps are
1: classic isn't it
0: it's good no you can no but you can totally see people like them playing live that is totally like one of those moments where people are just going to get involved I think it's really good. Yeah, It's a really great nice, track, it's catchy. It's got a really good hook going throughout, not just with the vocals, but um, that guitar hook, the mm-hmm. really good
1: guitars yeah. are great in it, love it. And you can find them at Kinband Official across social media, bit Twitter, Insta. That seems to be their handle for everything.
0: Yeah, oh, hang on, this is the band, isn't it? That um, we're, we're playing a show with them, yes, we are. Um, there's Cruel Hearts, who you would have heard on our show previously that we played, us, Bug Eye Band, Bug Eye. Um, okay. And this, this, this band, okay. they're, they're also playing they on the bill, aren't they? And the reason why I went, oh, this is the band. This is the band where the drummer was in Umbrella Academy.
1: What's Umbrella Academy?
0: It's a Netflix series.
1: Genuinely it's never seen genius. it. genius. And oh, her really?
0: character's genius. So um, Ritu Aya uh, plays a character called um Lila Pitts in season two. I won't mm-hmm. say too much about it, um, because, you know, spoilers and all that. But her character it kicks off, it's almost like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Okay. Which Cinemendswich. Fucking brilliant actress and superb drummer who's in this band. So moving back to nineteen eighty three, I think I went last I mean didn't go last. I went first on the last episode so I think you should go first with one of yours.
1: Okay, so yeah, um, I'll start with March 1983. So here we are. We're in March 1983, as I just said. Um, Russia are conducting underground nuclear tests while Reagan's launching Star Wars. Philips and Sony are launching... And is this
0: a song? It sounds incredible.
1: No, no, no. This is what is going on in the world. Sorry, right. I should have said that. A little bit of background context here. I
0: might go and grab some wine. It's, it's turning into all those evenings.
1: You need 3D goggles for this one. Um, Philips and Sony are launching a new musical concept called CDs, and and Dean are winning gold in the Helsinki Winter Olympics. Meanwhile, on the 7th of March a band called New Order are, le- are launching a single called Blue Monday. I mean, I say a single, it was actually a 12-inch, and it's actually the best-selling 12-inch of all time.
0: You're joking. What and even that- at the time, or is it one of those things that kind of went on to be such a cult classic that...
1: I mean, it did, and it was helped with two subsequent releases, to be fair, one in 1985 and one in 1988, and that's just in the 80s. I think there's been more since then. Um, but the eighty three release sold over, sold over seven hundred thousand copies alone.
0: That's pretty good going for that,
1: yeah. It's pretty good going for a song it's that more, doesn't. That's
0: slightly more than what we've sold.
1: Slightly, <laughs> it's good going for a song that doesn't really follow any kind of sort of traditional notions of like music. There's no sort of verse chorus structure to it. It's got a lengthy intro that was taken out for a lot of radio, and it runs at seven and a half minutes long. Jesus. I mean, it doesn't feel that long it when you listen to it no, at at that's cool, why I'm saying that. It really doesn't. I mean, it was called, a, described as the, by the BBC, those people that love to ban things, as we discovered, as a crucial link between 70s disco and the dance house boom that took off at the end of the 80s. And it marks like, a big sort of transition for New Order from their sort of post-punk to their sort of alt-dance and what they were doing with that. Um, like, as I said, it doesn't really follow any kind of sort of traditional notions of a song. It's like, you know, there's a lot of... Synth in there. It's just like verses are broken down by a little that we all know from this song. And what I think is really interesting about this song is it's called Blue Monday, but never is Blue Monday actually mentioned within the song itself.
0: So why is it called Blue Monday?
1: Funny you should ask that, Angela. Uh, yeah, uh, so I
0: <laughs> thought I'd preempt what was coming next.
1: Um, the title actually comes from uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions, and there's an illustration within it that reads "Goodbye, Blue Monday." A lot of people seem to think that it's got something to do with, like, women and doing their washing on Monday, which it might. But it seems to be quite often drawn on this little sort of, it looks like a sort of, kind of like a post-war kind of, maybe 19, pre-war, that is actually, isn't it? 1930s. My bad. No, your decades. Like a pre-war Depends sort of which helium war balloon. war you
0: about, doesn't it, really?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's an illustration that Kurt Vonnegut did as a reaction to the absurdities of life. I mean, read from that what you will. Kurt Vonnegut's yeah. mind is something else, and I don't think there's <laughs> enough space in this podcast to go into it. Um, so back to the song. Anyway, we'll leave Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, I think the big thing in this was like the sort of synth in, synth in it, and the synth synth player, keyboard player. What do you call her? Synth 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 synthesist. Synth, yeah. synth is um, that a word? Joking. Ooh, Joking. I don't know. is a little bit more than that. Um, She's quoted as saying they wanted to create a song that was completely electronic and one that they could just walk on the stage and it could be played without them doing it themselves. I mean, there is also a rumour that this song was made as a reaction to them getting criticism for never doing encores, which they didn't particularly want to do. So they just wrote a song they could just walk on, press a button and it's done.
0: Oh, can I just say? Yeah. So my button pressing Mm -hmm. thing was actually quite apt
1: then. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> no, but it was something they wanted to, be, wanted to be completely electronic. That, And they did quite often end up playing it as an encore. So I don't know. I mean, read into that rumour what you will. This is a rumour. I don't want to be sued for this. I'm just putting that out there now. It's a genius song. It is a genius song. And what's really genius is this, this is 1983 now. I mean, you know, compact discs are just starting to be thought of. Computers weren't really a wide-ranging thing, were they? And... Okay. Well, I was,
0: I was going to. I've got a fact mm-hmm. few, go for you. Actually, if if you want to know, the compact disc actually came out in 1983. That was yeah. the first year, so they weren't just thinking about it; they were launching it. it. They were launching it, and it featured on Tomorrow's World, and everyone said this will never take off.
1: Go back to as you, we go. Back to your story. They hadn't really come along to a mass audience then, shall we say that? <laughs> And like let's show rhythms and bass lines and things that, like, like that was super tricky. So Bernard Summer, their vocalist, built sequences himself and apparently mastered them by recording farts.
0: What? Yep. Oh, I love I love that.
1: I, I love those kinds of facts. Um so a lot of the bass lines were laid down on the synth and then played over by Peter Hook. Um, but she, sorry, she, Julian Gilbert, had to play the whole sequence the whole way through. And she had it all kind of like written out, like note by note by note. She had to kind of play this sort of seven and a half minute sequence, note perfects, in one take. Which she mm. did. Yeah. Except she missed one note, which means on the actual recording, it's a little bit out of sync. <gasps> really? But I've never noticed that. No, and I genuinely well, I've never this noticed song. it. So maybe it's one of those happy mistakes.
0: Well, I, I think it's one of those great things that you can go back now and listen and try and find where that, that note is. And that flick te- is. Sends, sends us a time signature of where that is, because I'm not going to, Bother. but um no I but that's lovely though because you could pick it out and just really hear that human error touch which I think mm. is what makes music
1: pretty pretty
0: fantastic exactly but what I'd things. like to know
1: is if when she listens to it does she just go oh every time she hears it <laughs> because I would I'd like to be like for the love of god you boss the entire song and you miss one freaking note like but anyway they left it there so they were obviously happy with it it was released on Factory Records, which, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole podcast about Factory Records that I would love Absolutely. to do, to be honest. Absolutely.
0: That's, that's one for the list.
1: Of course. And its cover was designed by a, a well-known Mr. Peter Saville, who did a lot of the kind of Factory covers at that time. and has gone on to be one of the sort of the great icons of design. It was based on a floppy disk, which is so sort of apt for that time. That he actually first saw when he went to the studio to hear them recording this track. And asked if he could take it away, and it must have been something that had some part of the track or part of their music on. So they were like, "Hell no, you can't take that one, but you can take this one," and that's what he kind of based the design on. So it's um, it's like sort of the, the black cover, and it has the cutouts with a circle. And the, do you yeah. remember what a floppy disk looked like? Yeah, yeah. Or maybe you even remember this cover. And behind that was a metallic cover that held the record inside it. Mm. Um, he was so late with getting this. Designed that it went straight to print. The record company hadn't seen it. The band hadn't seen it. So it was a total surprise. And you're just going to hope that they like it. It was also
2: mm.
1: so expensive that it actually ended up costing factory money for every record they sold.
0: Oh, what? Do you, so, so basically, the royalty price for the design was higher than the
1: not the royalty price, the production price. Because it was a double sleeve, and one of them was a metallic, a metallic kind of inner sleeve. Oh, it was so expensive. Wow that they lost money every time they sold Oh, But one. was it
0: like a limited run that they did of that version and then did the old...
1: I mean, look, it was only, it was cost them 5p a copy. But still, in as I'll come to something a bit later, you know, 5p then wasn't what 5p is now. Because I was about to say that's... But the printers couldn't keep up with demands. Bearing in mind, like this, the 83 release sold seven, 700,000 copies. Yeah. They couldn't keep up with demand. So they just ended up printing like plain black ones i giving them out, whether factory records or not. I mean, factory records may or may not have been charged for whatever price they were getting. But all tales told, their accounting wasn't too good. So Lord knows.
0: Well, that was one of the things about factory records. Mm. It was like the, the record no label wasn't yeah. a record label. It was like just goodwill and um, poor accounting mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But great yeah. A&R skills.
1: Yeah. So they were knocking out these cheaper versions. I think the other notable thing about this cover is it doesn't have any kind of words or lettering on there. The only thing that's on there is the sort of the factory code number, So it might be like factory, I don't know, one hundred eight or one hundred nine, depending on what kind of How one it was. How much do in the you sequence. think one
0: of those original? Well, well there is a lot of them out there, isn't there? Seven hundred yeah. and whatever. Well, no, because but- not
1: all seven hundred of them have are the original one. Oh, okay, so like they couldn't keep up with it. Ah. They just printed cheaper and easier ones. Ah. But what what Peter Saville did do is he wrote the like the bands and the track name in um on the, I think it's on the. Checking my left and right here now. <laughs> Alpha left. On the right-hand side, there's a series of blocks, and each yeah. one of those blocks, the color designates a letter of the alphabet. Mm-hmm. So it does say "New Order, Blue Monday" on there, and that on their subsequent album was it "Power, Power, Corruption, and Lies." Mm-hmm. There's a chart in the back of that well, that tells that you how out, to decode wasn't that it. The one
0: that came out in 1983 yeah. was that album yeah. that came out in 1983.
1: But there's a chart in the back of that that tells you how to decode what it actually says running down the side which nice. I thought was super interesting.
0: It's nice.
1: So, yeah, I mean, what an absolute classic track, Blue Monday. You listen to it now, it still sounds absolutely brilliant, in my opinion. But
0: also, I think that's a, like a lot of the bands, the music that was coming out in the 80s, obviously when, you, when we got to the 90s, people looked back at the 80s and frowned. Um, but given time now, you listen back, and those things do sound incredibly mm-hmm. fresh mm-hmm. more so than anything that was that that came out in the 90s i think personally
1: and also in, um, like incredibly progressive for their time yeah absolutely incredibly progressive
0: yeah it was it was certainly um i think there was for the dance music in the 90s there was obviously still a hell of a lot of movement but i think with guitar bands actually um perhaps not so listening back to it now i think a lot of records from the 90s sound quite Quite dated. I don't know. Really. I think there's some
1: great records from the 90s. I'm
0: but not saying they're not great records, but I'm saying as in I think like you listen to something like New Order mm-hmm. and that sounds so fresh versus maybe, you know, the stuff from Definitely Maybe by Oasis now sounds very of its time.
1: I think they're two kind of different genres. And I think going of back course, to the point you but, made about yeah. dance music, this was sort of laying the, founda- the foundations almost mm-hmm, for that yeah. to go and become what it was.
0: Of course. But you know what? Those foundations were laid earlier, which brings me to. I uh... said <laughs> they were laid earlier. It sounds like I was actually going go back to the, the <laughs> beginning of dance music. I just wanted to kind of loop back into uh, chucking it onto my album and find a connection. But this is not a great connection. Going back all the way back to 1979. Ooh, The most important I year. This was 1983. Music. Ah. Ah, uh, it is. But you just hang on there, girl, Ooh. and I'll get to it. Right. So, um, I mentioned I was going to talk about deep sea skiving by Banana Rama, which is exactly what I'm talking about. I haven't changed my mind mm-hmm. there. Right. So, Banana Rama were a trio that formed in London in 1979, the greatest year for music. Right. I have to say, well, for music,
1: because you were born in off. it
0: and so we you yeah it's it's a super 1979 features so often in these podcasts and it's totally unplanned
1: and probably every other year features exactly the amount exactly the amount of same exactly the same amount however we just noticed 1979 because yeah. it is the best year it is the best year definitely
0: anyway the band formed um well which it was so it was Sarah Siobhan and Karen And apparently, Sarah and Karen were students living in a YMCA with very little money, and they had a chance meeting with Paul Cook, ex-Sex Pistols, at the Club... um, What was it called? The Club Studio 21. And he offered the pair a room above the Sex Pistols old rehearsal space in Denmark Street. Really? Yeah, he did. And the walls um, were covered with Johnny Rotten's drawings of Sid and Nancy... And so Sarah and Karen added their own like little bits to to that Annotations. yeah. <laughs> and I be- obviously that doesn't exist now. That's some some clever spot when oh look at this and painted over it probably. But anyway, they learned to play guitars and you know and they recorded demos at studios at Denmark Street. They even did backing vocals on Paul Cook and Steve Jones' new band, The Professionals. Really? Yeah. So they were like kind of really hanging out with mm-hmm. loads of the bands and jamming and writing and doing stuff like that. But um, there was a third member that I mentioned called Siobhan, and they met um, when uh, Sarah attended London University of Arts, the London College of Fashion, to study journalism. And they were drawn together by this uh, kind of similar distinctive look, monkey boots and backcombed hair and the love of Patti Smith, and they all became like really fast friends mm-hmm. from that. And, they, and from that moment, they started to write songs and they even jumped on stage, at you know, at art school with loads of their friends' bands. And they supported Iggy Pop at the Rainbow in Finsbury Park on one occasion. That's amazing. I know. So, I really didn't know this about Bananarama. I have a be. question.
1: At this point, they were an unsigned band supporting Iggy Pop.
0: They were an unsigned band, yeah. That's
1: pretty cool, hey?
0: And little did they know at this point that they were, you know, only moments away from being one of the most successful pop groups around mm-hmm. in the 80s. Um, So enough about the sort of backstory, because I didn't really want to do that bit so much, but I thought that was quite interesting, Yeah, because I didn't know that about them. Uh, So on to the album, but slightly before that, just how they kind of got signed. So in 1981, Bananarama recorded their first demo, which was a cover of a song by Black Blood, which was sung in Swahili. Um, Demon was... They
1: sung the entire song in Swahili? Uh, Yeah. I'm impressed.
0: Well, I hope they did. That's my notes. It was sung in Swahili. So okay. Was the original sung in Swahili, and then they? Ch- no, I'm sure they sang it in Swahili. I'm sure they okay. did. Actually, which w- another comment will make sense of that in a moment. <laughs> but I said the demon, <laughs> not the demon. The demo, the demon demo. No, the the demo was heard at Demon Records, who <laughs> subsequently kind of offered Banana Rama their first record deal. The song was like a kind of underground hit and reached sort of number 92 in the charts which today you know i think that any kind of new band starting out to get to number 92 in the charts would be a massive feat because that's mm-hmm. really really difficult it's difficult then but i suppose more so now and anyway, consequently um consequently uh, they were offered um another record deal by uh Decca records which would later become London records and they remained on that label until 1993. So yeah, I mean, I think that's quite a tremendous start for you know a pop a pop group, not in the manufactured way that you would you would think. But anyway, Banana Rama experienced their great success during the period of kind of 1982 to 1989. Yeah, um, that and that was with their first three albums. And it was kind of they embodied this sort of spangled excess of the 80s they came to define at least a portion of the, the decade for their look and their sound and, and the things that they did. But Their debut album, Deep Sea Skiving, reached number seven in the UK charts, but only number 63 in the US, and that was in 1983. But it contained several hit singles, Really Saying Something. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that one? Um Although, I don't... Would we Actually, no, that? Actually, I don't
1: remember that. I really
0: remember... Saying so. I think I remember more the Bangles' Greatest Hits because Harold, would we have been at that point, like, so young, we wouldn't have remembered.
1: The Bangles or Bananarama? Bananarama. Shit.
0: This Edit. Idiot that I'm not <laughs> editing that
1: out.
0: It's a mistake I often, often make them.
1: Genuine mistake. Yeah.
0: But, but no, Bananarama's Greatest Hits, I think I was more sort of, you know aware of them a little bit later beyond this. I
1: definitely know the song, but I don't... I mean, I don't know if I'd... Yeah, I remember Holiday. Oh, I'll come to that later. Go on. Anyway.
0: Um, And then Shy Boy, which reached number four in the UK charts. And it included a cover of Nana Hey, Kiss Him Goodbye and Cheers Then. But that, that last song, Cheers Then, only reached number 45 and was kind of like, you know, not seen as a real success but still had positive reviews. So this wasn't their big moment mm-hmm. in music, but this was paving the way. They were starting to get chart success. Their next album would really blow it out of the water, especially when they started to work with um, Stock and Wartman, but that was also their downfall. But a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, he Was Really Saying Something is a soul song written by Motown songwriters Norman Whitfield, William Mickey Stevenson and Edward Holland Jr., uh in 1964. So this was a cover of that song. And the song sort of notable the 1964 version was the American Motown girl group The Velvettes um, And that was in a kind of 60s hit to a degree. Um, but the 1983 version, although this, that song was released in 1982, but the album followed, um, that was something that would really set Banana apart from the rest, Mm -hmm. as, you know, the British girl group to watch. So their debut album, Deep Sea Skiving, as I said, was a UK hit, but it kind of got to top ten with um, Shy Boy and and the other songs that I've mentioned. But they were yet to break through in the US, and it wasn't until their second album, um, which led with the single Cruel Summer, that was featured on the hit movie Karate Kid, that would really cement them in music history. But that song had controversy about it. Um and that's a note that I don't have written down here. So if you want to write in and tell me a little bit more about that one, then that that
1: would be great. Crawl Summer's a cracking track. They've got so many great songs. And to be honest, I didn't even know they made it in the US. I always assumed they were like a because I wouldn't probably wouldn't have been aware with aware of them or even aware that the US was a market to break when Banana Arm around. But For me, they just fell into that sort of Stock, Aiken, and Waterman sort of... Well, not cliche, but just that kind of sort of stable of bands and artists that were producing great pop music because that's what they did.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it was very much like with a lot of the big producers, like even with Phil Spector, it's like they have a sound Mm -hmm. and that sounds great and they work with a number of different artists, but then it becomes quite stale after some time and and, and they don't really Runs its course kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. So they did, you know, Banana Rama changed... The course, after that album and teamed up with Stock Waltman. Um and the producers kind of sexed the girls up and changed their image. Remember, they come from this kind of rocky, punky background, right? But this was the time after that 1983 album that, um, you know, they had the song, which was a shocking sort of blues song, Venus, yep. which topped international charts both in the UK and the US, and that was it. Their career was launched. But post Venus, the group um, kind of continued to notch up dance orientated hits, but um, you know frustrations started to to happen with with the band, and things started to fall apart a bit. And especially with Siobhan mm-hmm. from from the band, and uh, she left to form the duo Shakespeare Sisters. Yes. Shakespeare's yeah, yeah. sister, yeah. even if I get the. With uh, what's her name, um, Marcella Detroit.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and and what um, what Siobhan says was I was massively frustrated at the end of Banana Rama. She explains that Shakespeare's sister stay went to number one, and she had um, felt gagged and bound, even though it did force her to confront the fact that she was really a bit fucked up. And why? Because they were getting massive exposure. As- for things that she didn't feel particularly proud of. There was a lot of guilt there,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, such as what and that kind of. wish you know, they went from as I said, like they they came from you know playing with Iggy Pop and being mm-hmm. a bit more gritty to then being polished up into these like. Sexy ladies and coming
1: from the same stable um, as like Kylie and Minogue 14. and Jason I mean, Donovan, exactly
0: like really put mm-hmm. them into um,
1: a different category.
0: Yeah, and so in late February nineteen, no, not nineteen, late February twenty eleven though, Siobhan's project um, Shakespeare's sister announced that they were releasing their own version of really saying something as a special anniversary single celebrating thirty years since Banana Rama recorded that. Single.
1: I didn't know they did that.
0: Yeah, they did, and um, so I, 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 think, I think with successful a lot of, lot of friendships can can kind of pull it apart a bit. Um, people have different aspirations for what they want to do with their career, but Banana Rama did keep going mm-hmm. as a duo um, without Siobhan. Um, but back, back to them anyway. I mean, their success on both pop and dance charts saw them listed in the Guinness World saw them listed in the Guinness World Records for achieving the world's highest number of chart entries by an all-female group. And that was between 1982 and 2009. Um, they had 28 singles all reach the top 50 in the UK singles charts and no one else had done that as wow. a female group. So, you know, they were really a lot more successful than I thought
1: me they too. had been. I mean, if you um, asked me to say who was yeah. the most successful female group, I'd probably go Destiny's Child.
0: Well, I mean, when did Destiny's Child? Uh, I suppose. Ah, oh, it's a
1: different time, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. a different time, I'm and I suppose wrong. it's all
0: about w- which years are you actually picking. But, um, and what's
1: your definition of success?
0: Yeah, exactly. But 28 singles all in the top 50 charts. Yeah, you Charles can't argue is with that, can you? amazing, isn't it? You can't argue that. But why Bananarama? Why were they called Rama?
1: Because they had a drama with a banana. <laughs>
0: You could be a comedian, you're so funny.
1: No. Um, they say, we just
0: wanted a silly name that expressed enjoyment and light-heartedness. Um, I think they won
1: there. Our first
0: single was sung in Swahili.
1: So Ooh. it was definitely sung in
0: Swahili. So thought of something tropical, Bananas, and added Rama because it sounded silly. They got the idea for Rama from the Roxy music song, Pajama Rama.
1: Ooh.
0: I like that. I like that too. So that's what I'm going to end off on. But that was a very kind of like brief dip into Bananarama. But I think they they had really such a fascinating beginning. Mm-hmm. Um Whereas, I don't know, for me, I just, I sort of just thought that.
1: I thought they were a manufactured pop band what? that came from Stock Aiken and Waterman, well, like along exactly. the lines of like Kylie Lowe, yeah, think- Jason Donovan, Big Fun. Those kind, that's how I remember Banana Rama. You know how a lot of the
0: groups. It's like, oh, we were all friends. It's like, were you, you were all friends once you were put together in this manufactured band? But
1: in this fact, manufactured house, exactly, in this manufactured yeah. like mansion in the country, yeah, even
0: all your manufactured <laughs> little looks and whatever. But but no, Banana Rama really didn't start out out like that at all. But um, incredible songs, massive hits, a really important band for for the eighties in in the world of pop. And, you know, I mean, I know my sisters were massive fans of them. Mm-hmm. Like I say, you know, obviously I wouldn't have remembered 1983, but I certainly remembered some of their later songs, Venus and, and, and things like this, but mainly through, through my sisters and kids on the street trying yeah. to come up with dances. And yeah, great. Love
1: Bananarama. Love Bananarama.
0: So, should we have some more new music? Let's indeed. Okay, well... What are you
1: playing this week, Angela? The
0: song I'm going to play this week, if I can just get my notes about it, um, is... I'm going to play... We've played this band before. Okay. And I can't quite remember... play
1: of a of a... No, 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 it no, no, it's a new song, it's a new
0: song. Ooh. New song from them. New music. Um, I can't quite remember where we discovered the band Crosswires... But I know that I have fallen in love with their music and just think they're so incredibly talented and going to go on to do tremendous things. So the song I'm going to play is Hall of Mirrors. Now, this, is the, this might not sound as polished as other singles from other bands that you'll hear, but I still think it sounds incredible. This is the first of a series of songs that the band plan to release, right? The song... Is ba- was basically written and recorded in one day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but they wrote it and recorded it in a day. And that's what I really love about this. That's impressive. But it's a really good song. And it was created, it was, because it was kind of created in the moment. And there wasn't all of that kind of mm-hmm. weeks and weeks of rehearsal changing this stuff. And it is still a cracking tune. Very organic and extremely well crafted. Been a fan, as I said, of this band for a while now. And uh, I'm really hoping that, you know, when we get Croco Land off the ground for 2021, that they'll, they'll come and play because I just, yeah, I'm going to see them play, actually. Um, one oh, of the, you're going of, to that socially distance gig, you?
1: a socially distanced gig, aren't you? There's a
0: socially distanced gig that they're playing with the, with Novus, um, who are another band that I need to play on this show. Mm-hmm. So I think that is going to be an amazing gig. So here it is, Hall of Mirrors. Yeah. Of mirrors by Crosswires So what did you think of that one?
1: I am genuinely Actually no I'm staggered That oh, they produced that and wrote And not just produced it but if they produced that in a day I would be staggered but to write and produce it in a day Bloody hell man They wrote
0: and recorded it in a day and then it was mixed And mastered so there was no Like faffing around with it at all and you know, if this is the first of a series,
1: mm-hmm. I can't like, wait to hear the rest well, of it. Well,
0: exactly. I mean, that's that's my point. Like, that's a fully formed, genius song, in my view. I think it's catchy. I think it's wonderful, and it's just it's yeah. I want to know what it's about and what they were thinking. I'm and quite sure that
1: you're going to see them now.
0: Oh well, you know, I did. Off it's sold out now, Paula. Yeah,
1: I know, but I was having one of my COVID flip-outs at the time, wasn't I? you got my
0: hot picks, you've got to to jump on it. When there's a ticket, you've got to go for Uh, it, haven't
1: you? I know. Anyway, it is what it is. There'll be other gigs, but that is a banging track. It is. So,
0: hopefully, I'm going to get to play all of the stuff they put out. I might have to space them out a bit or it will seem quite biased about new music, but I do really, really like them genuinely. In the great, this is
1: new music. This is a Bug Eye podcast featuring Crosswires. <laughs> by Crosswires, maybe we could get them to do a jingle for us. Oh, Crosswires, will you do? A, will you do a Rock Pot Ramble's jingle for us? Yeah, please do. Please do. No pressure. No pressure. pressure. Yeah. No
0: pressure. <laughs> right. Okay. Um. So, Paula, Paula,
1: you've got you've got a song. Yeah. It's um. Oh, Madge. I haven't got a song. I haven't got a song. I've got, I've got, a, little, I've got a little story, a little yarn to share with you little out yarn. there. Yeah, so here we are. We're back in 1983 and we're actually in July of 1983 now. And London is sweltering in 33 degree heat. But don't worry, because how much do you think a pint is going to cost you in London in
0: 1983?
1: 79p. Oh, are you joking? Well, I
0: thought I picked 1979. I thought I picked 79p.
1: 80p. Oh, I'm a winner. Actually, the statistics for the cost of a, a winner. the cost of a pint in the UK in 1983 was between 50p and 80p. So it being London, I obviously went for the 80p, but I think 79p is a fair guess.
0: Oh, I think that's a bloody genius. Gold guess.
1: star this week, Miss Martin. <laughs> Unbelievably, MPs have voted just 361 to 245 against reinstating the death penalty. 245 MPs voted to reinstate the death penalty in 1983, which is staggering to me. Well, I've
0: got a fact about 1983 which you might think, you will probably think might have influenced that that horrible vote. There was um, some mad serial killer, wasn't there? Yeah, I'm going to talk about that in a minute.
1: And on a lighter note, Nintendo launched Super Mario Fun times. Yeah, but only as an arcade game and only in Japan. Oh. But anyway, here's what we're here to talk about. On the 27th of July in 1983, the Queen of Pop was born. She came into the world with her self-titled debut album, Madonna, which actually was originally called Lucky Star, but was changed to Madonna as like a statement of like the kind of the sort of, this woman has star power. And
0: Which she absolutely does. She did, does. does. She does, did, does. And yeah.
1: whatever will. She dedicated it to her father, who she seems to have had somewhat of a, how would you describe it? Rocky relationship with almost? Slightly turbulent. 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 Turbulent, approaching super turbulent. And she's quoted as saying, my father had never believed that what I was doing here, meaning like in New York, was worthwhile. Nor did he believe that I was up to any good. It wasn't until my first album came out and he started to hear songs on the radio that he stopped asking me questions about it. Which, so I guess, like, for her, like, getting to the point of putting this album out was absolutely massive. I mean, she'd established herself as a singer in downtown New York. She'd not had the easiest ride getting there. She kind of arrived in the city, grafted, did a lot of, like, not me, your jobs, but did a lot of jobs that weren't what she was aiming to do. Tried to get into singing shows, theatre, and then... Like, she's, she was the sole writer for quite a lot of the tracks on this album, which I think some, isn't something that people are aware of. There are songs that on there, and I'll go into this a little bit later, that she didn't write. But she was the sole writer for a lot of the tracks on the album. She in, initially brought Reggie Lucas in to produce it after meeting him at her then-boyfriend's flat. Her then-boyfriend was Jean-Michel Basquiat, you know, the <sighs> painter. Yeah. I mean, I love, like, with things like... I'm fascinated with this kind of New York scene at this time with everything sort of interweaving. It's really, really interesting. But she became like sort of super frustrated with his output. And I think in particular, him not listening to her. And given that time, it's hard to say. I mean, she's well known for being a bit of a control freak and someone who wants to have a lot of influence over her know, music and her but, output. But can
0: I, can I say, you hear this about women, mm. but you never hear it so much about men. Oh, they're a mm-hmm. So I'm sorry, but this is your... Your business you're making these people money with your songs, right? Um I mean I'm not gonna go into the ins and outs of um of Madonna or, or any other perceived diva, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you know, I do wonder how much of this is, you know, perpetuated by men, you know, it oh women are a problem. When, I'm sorry, but there are some... I
1: worked in the music industry and there are some stories I could tell you about men. And absolutely agree. And that was about to be my point. Like goner than
0: anyone. I this like is 1983.
1: It. And yeah. I, I would say, like, she had to work... Excuse my language, but fucking hard to get to where she was. Mm-hmm. She got there, some producers not giving her what she wants and also not listening to her input in it. I think I'd be a little bit pissed as well.
0: Well, yeah, but also, I mean... Let's, let's not forget that, you know, for anyone that says about Madonna and and how she got where she was and all of this stuff, you know, I think there's a lot of bitchiness around it, to be honest. Um, she's one of the most powerful mm-hmm. people, person in music, even to this day. Like the, the power that she wields is is incredible. And that doesn't come from being a silly girl no. who doesn't know what they're doing or... Who just like shagging their way? No, so, not which, at all. You know, and I'm not saying that she did do that, but I'm saying these are just some of the things that people have said about her, which you know, no, no one has said that. Well, look, you know, no one's, no one really talks about men in music in the same in the same way, do they? Really? No, they
1: don't. And what they also don't talk about women in music, is the absolute hard graft
0: no, exactly. that she put into
1: it. Because exactly. she really, she really really did. The amount
0: of shit she would have had to have put up with as well in the yeah, early absolutely. years, you know?
1: So anyway, uh, she was not a fan of this producer, so she said au revoir to him, like, having nothing to do with you, and fair play to her. She probably got a bit of a reputation for it, but let's be real, she did the right thing. He wasn't producing her music the way she wanted it to sound, and she brought in John Jellybean Batinez, who... I don't know if he's her boyfriend at the time, but he certainly went on to become it. He also featured really prominently in a documentary I, wa- I watched for um, the episode we did on the 808.
0: Oh, really? Did he?
1: And I would love to tell you that she used an 808 on this album, but she didn't. <laughs> However, what I can tell you is she did use a Moog bass, and an Ob- Obraheim OBX. And I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but nice tie in here. They were both used on Blue Monday by New Order.
2: <gasps> really? So what ah, I think is quite yeah.
1: interesting is that it's like it's two two instruments, but just used to very very kind of different ends. Yeah. So it's like it's very much like the sort of the sound that was around that time and the instruments were around in studios that time, but someone's written lucky star on it and someone's written blue monday on it and how different are those two songs it it because this this
0: is this is how you look back and you see how music's evolving and how we make music in in whatever genre is really being impacted by by technology Mm -hmm. and you know but those those people that are against technology you know the electric guitar was a new you know thing at some point everyone frowned upon and and just yeah, no, I love that. That's that you win on facts. That one
1: on that one, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so she'd had two singles released prior to this album's um, release in July. She kind of went on sort of sort of small promo tours. She did a bigger one around like I think it was '85. It was a like the Like a Virgin tour or something like that. But anyway, yeah, she actually played at Camden Palace, which is now Coco. Can you imagine seeing Madonna in Coco?
0: I, di- I did have a fact about um, Coco, but I think that was on something I was going to talk about. So I'm just going to leave that.
1: Carry on. So after these two singles, the third one, which was the one that came out after the album was released, was Holiday. And this like this single for me is super special because it was the first seven-inch I ever owned. <gasps> really? I mean, I obviously didn't buy it with my own cash. I think that in the UK, I think this actually came out in 94... Mid maybe starts mid ninety four, not in ninety three, but holidays are first single. Own. And I think that's quite a cool single. But you to do have. you
0: do remember it, don't you? And I just yeah. I, I'm reading at the moment. Well, I've just finished reading so much for the thirty year plan, which is the um, authorized biography about the band Therapy by mm-hmm. Simon Young, and it it starts off with um, well, it doesn't start off with this, but there's there's that moment where one of the band members. From um, was it the band member or the author? Oh, I need to check my notes back on that. But basically, it talks about that moment when you buy your very first record, and mm-hmm. it's not it's not when you've earned the money necessary to earn it, but it's when your parents take you to a record shop and either hand you the cash to then pick your record and and pay for it at the counter, or you know, or you've picked it in their paper. But it's like your first actual choice. That is you deciding to buy a record, and that is so memorable.
1: It is quite special. I don't even know that I remember buying it, but I remember that was a, that was the first record we have in we had in our house that I wanted to play because up until that, I mean, up until that point, my dad, like my dad, always had records. Yeah, but what four, five, six, seven year old wants to listen to Pink Floyd? I mean, I mean, and that's not to so say I don't respect that music now. But as a child, like when you have something like that, it's like that is super precious.
0: So, would you have would you have picked that up at the age of four? Probably or do you not. Think it was like a little bit later. Than I that? think no. I'm I think say... I
1: think it was bought, but I consider that my first record because it was the first uh, one that right. I had that I loved. Anyway, no, this is not about me. This is about Madonna. So let's keep it on mad, <laughs> shall we? Um, it it was not a single that was written by her, and it was actually something that came very very late to the album. There was another song that she'd recorded. Called Ain't No Big Deal that whoever she'd written it with had sold it to someone else that had recorded it and released it. So obviously this couldn't be put out on her album, and this was like a total last minute scrap to find a song, and it ended up being like her her kind of her first mainstream hit straight into the into the charts. So although she didn't write it, she is, however, credited with playing cowbell on it, which I think is super cool.
0: I think
1: that's amazing. <laughs> I mean like fuck it if I didn't write someone to play the cowbell in it. It was also her first foray into video, which was like a sort of a super, super simple video. It's like literally her dancing around. It's got her brother and one of her mates dancing beside her. But what it kind of did do was sort of showcase her as a performer and her as the entire package, which I think we can all recognise she most definitely yeah. is. Like she doesn't do things by half. And I think by doing that video. It then got some money behind the subsequent videos for "Borderline" and "Lucky Star," and with the cash that was spent on them, it kind of it helped get Madonna onto MTV, onto heavy rotation, and MTV at that time was like really exciting and really new.
0: Well, MTV for a number of decades, actually, mm. like even into I think it was kind of starting to die a death, probably late nineties, early noughties, yeah. maybe. But you know, the MTV you generation. Know, generation Was um, was absolutely incredible, and it was it was it was almost more important than radio. If you could do a video that stood out, and if you could get on rotation um, on MTV, that that was like the ultimate the ultimate goal. Absolutely,
1: and she very much did. Like she had a super strong look. It was actually styled by a jewelry designer whose name I cannot remember for the life of me. That's really poor. But yeah, I mean, she got into MTV. She got into heavy rotation. And, like, her look kind of became an influence for young girls and women at that time. Like, the sort of the leggings, the skirts over the top, the bangles, the lace gloves. That was seen everywhere. So, yeah, I mean, like, what a phenomena. But just to keep things a little bit lighter, I've got a Madonna (laughs) early years quiz for you. Okay, go on then. So, Madonna performed in a band prior to going solo. In fact, she performed in several several, but one of them was called Madonna and the What.
0: Donna and the Penguin.
1: No. <laughs> and listeners at home, you can play along with this. The first three people to either comment on our socials with the correct answers or to email us will win a prize. But you know, So Paul, I'm going to give Paula, you a little gap Paula, after Paula,
0: each one. Can I, can I just say, Paula, you need to understand, right? This is not, you, because you often do this, this is not a live show. Someone can listen to this show at any point. Listen to the answers and
1: email us, right, at a later point. Okay, I'm going to make a note of your answers in that case, and I'll give the answer at a later date. And, lads, if you want to Google it. you're not going to tell me now. You're going to leave me hanging. Madonna and the Penguin. So, that's what I've said. It's not Madonna and the Penguin. Uh, I'm going to give you less than one point for that, yes.
0: (laughs) Okay, so you actually want people to email us and we reveal the answers
1: later? Or comment in the comments. That's going to be a lot easier. Anyone gets it right? First three people, you'll get a, a personalized prize from myself. A kiss. It's a not COVID going to be a kiss. kiss. This is COVID times. <laughs> Ew, even in un COVID times, it wouldn't be a kiss. You <laughs> lads, come on now. Madonna moved to New York, according to her own fo- folklore, with how much money in her pocket? $35, $25 or $55? It's going to be $35, isn't it? She's going to have or
0: it, $35 and then she was mugged and then she had to like busk and tap dance and
1: yeah. Okay, I've noted your answer as well. And if you come <laughs> up with a top scorer here, you will get a prize, which also, will be I so think, cr- I
0: think <laughs> people need to have a little story about her, um, what mm. she did with her money when she first got to New York. I, I want creativity here. I think that'd be good.
1: Back on, kiddo. <laughs> Uh, Madonna worked at a well-known, let's say, dessert fast food chain. A, what was it? And this is a double-point scorer here. A, what was it? What was it? And B, why was she fired from it? Angela?
0: Dunkin' Donuts, Mm -hmm. which I don't even know if that existed right then, but Dunkin' Donuts.
1: Why was she fired? And
0: she was fired because she... Oh, I want to come up with something really fun, but no, she threw a donut in a customer's face. Someone who was rude to her. Take hey that, motherfucker.
1: you know what? I have another answer, but I think that might be closer to the truth. <laughs> all right. Okay. Anyway, all laughs and jokes inside. Um, Can I just say, do you yeah, actually know the answer to I do. To I have questions? them written here. Is it like when you did
0: my baby shower and you went to town and did this board with these baby animals and people had to guess what the baby animal was... Um, and when you read out the answers, it was that's a baby sheep, that's a baby pig, that's a baby swan. You didn't actually ask for like the actual name of the babies of those.
1: Those I did those for animals. some, but some were just called a baby, whatever the bigger one was. No, but yes, I have the answers, and <laughs> no, I will you show didn't. you. I will you show didn't. you after. Anyway, <laughs> all jokes aside, Madonna's debut album um, was bloody brilliant. It was ranked. 50 out of the top 100 albums of the 80s by Rolling Stone, who said it's assured style and sound, as well as Madonna's savvy approach to videos, helped the singer make the leap from dance diva to pop phenomenon. It pointed the direction for a host of female artists, including Janet Jackson and Debbie Gibson. Uh, Madonna has subsequently gone on to sell 200 million records worldwide. Jesus. She's released 88 singles and is listed in the Guinness World Records as the world's most successful female recording artist. And this album is where it started.
0: Bloody good. Well done,
1: well Cheers done. Cheers, podcasto. Well
0: done. Right, well, I don't think I can top that tale, actually. I think mine's... Um, mine, mine is still... still Back on. Yeah, yeah, it's still, a, still a good one, still a good one. So, I mentioned the Riff um, How could this not be a good one? This is well, an amazing well, no, song. no, I'm talking about like research quality, right? Um I think I think that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Really. Um, but yeah, so the riff Mix, as I mentioned, had an album out um, in 1983, and the song I'm going to talk about has the same title of that album, and it's um, "Sweet Dreams Are Made of This."
1: Can you say that without wanting to sing it?
0: No. I, I, it's just intimate, but I also want to do the Marilyn Manson version, Sweet Dreams, of, oh, which is I've a got cracking that. cover of that. But anyway, so the album was released quite early in the year, and I didn't do such a sterling job of research of as to take down the dates of things. Nothing that would oh, have been no good worry. if we'd done it in date order and actually planned this together, but that's just yeah, I'm rubbish at that. But um, so it was the fourth single from the album, and it was. The most successful single from the album and this would be the one that would rocket their their career it was the breakthrough hit for the duo and established them worldwide actually and um, and the music video is considered to be a classic from the mtv era it starts off i don't know if you've seen this
1: i probably have but i'm struggling because to remember this, it. this was
0: the kind of decade where a lot of videos stopped just being about dancing in front mm-hmm, of the camera mm-hmm. or or them playing live or whatever. And they were like concept videos.
1: And I think the yeah. Eurythmics are very much that kind of a band, like the kind of totally. sort of Kate Bushy sort well, this, of this, Well, this video,
0: I mean, you look at it now and you go, really? Yeah. Um, because it's the type of video that, you know, in lockdown, shit, we could have done. Right? Yeah, but at the um, time it was bloody groundbreaking. Time, well, no, no, but that's what I mean, just as in how things have changed mm-hmm. with production and how it's more accessible for people to do things um, with the digital era. But, um, But this video, so it starts off with this, like, kind of model train, like it is a, a toy train. Yeah. But not, you know, I don't know if it's supposed to look real or mm-hmm. like a toy, mm-hmm. um, but going through, like, snowy mountains. Um, and then and then it cuts to, like, um, Annie and Dave. Annie and
1: Dave. Your mate sat
0: <laughs> in the carriage and the the windows of the train become, like, a kind of green screen thi- well, thing where, where other video bits are. A a put off. So yeah, like I say, it starts, they go through the snowy mountains, it cuts to the duo and the train, and there's like this kind of thing where they're to the beat, there's like fists pounding on the table or pounding on the seats. It's almost like they're they're becoming the instruments, which is which is quite cool. They're very staccato, Mm -hmm. very like kind of devoid of emotion with their faces. Um they look absolutely fantastic and so they're kind of doing the beats on the train in a staccato where, as I say like using the chairs and, yeah. and the table and the, the the windows become like you know there's a moment where it's a close up of these beautifully 1980s kind of glossed lips singing the song but then they also cut to to different things that they could be passing in a board room and, and all of these weird things that you wouldn't normally see from a train but some you would um, Anyway, so the, as I say, the train's gone from this snowy setting, and Annie Lennox is sat there in this kind of white suit, and it's so divine, and she's like this kind of eighties androgyny kind of beautiful character.
1: I do remember that look of her
0: character, and you know which which would become even even more accentuated with the further singles that that they did after that. But she looks absolutely sublime in this. And according to Annie Lennox, the lyrics reflected the unhappy time after the breakup of of the band she was in before this, called mm. The Tourists, when she felt that they were in a dream world and whatever they were chasing was never going to happen. She decided the song. She sorry. She described, not decided. She described the song as saying, "Look at the state of us. How can it get worse?" Adding, "I was feeling very vulnerable." The song was an expression of how I felt, hopeless and narcissistic. Um, Stuart, however, Dave Stewart, um, thought the lyrics were too depressing and added, hold your head up and moving on as a line to make it a bit more uplifting. A counterbalance you know? kind of thing. Moving mm-hmm. on yeah, bit, yeah. Um, but, I mean, you know, commenting on the line, some, some of them want to use you, some of them want to be abused by you. Um, Lennox said that people think or thought that it was about sex in S- S&M and it really wasn't mm-hmm. about that at all in, in the song. And I think they're kind of, you know, from articles and things and looking back and trying to pull back some of the historical comments is is quite hard actually online yeah. to find that stuff. But there were some things as in it was, you know, the, the way that she looked and they're, they're very determined, pounding, that they thought that it did have this very sexual undertone to it but that, but that, that really the wasn't same. the case that's
1: kind of the same thing that we we're touching on about madonna being perceived as being like a bit of a diva it's like if a woman does that it's always got to have sexual undertones yeah. it can't just be that is what it is where well, in, in the case exactly. of a man it's like okay there's a pounding beat and he's pounding his pounding fist in time to it it looks quite powerful whereas a woman does it, it always has to have
0: And a, and a woman a woman you know in a suit you know at that time, you know, obviously, obviously, there must be something perverse about it. And of course, it's just and I think we do
1: have to remember as well. This is nineteen eighty three. So yeah. This is like almost forty years ago.
0: Yeah. Well, no, no. Oh, well, right? which yeah. is still not that long ago, and it's still shocking that people. No, thought it, I'm not saying did. that it's
1: that. It, the, 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 sorry, I'm losing my words here. I'm not saying that it's right that that was the case. But... No, no,
0: no. But it's 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 true. It's it's, it's how people thought wrongly or rightly, or what well, was never rightly, but, um, but that's that's how they thought. Mm. But so in case some people don't know, um, Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart were in a band, because um, I mentioned them earlier and I just wanted to explain that, um, called The Tourist, and they were also a couple. They were together. Mm-hmm. Um, and The Tourists were a band that never really achieved like success, really. Um, they sort of had brief success perhaps in the 1970s, but they split in 1980. And um, Annie and Dave also broke up. But they they decided to still work together on, on, on musical projects. I mean, they both had a shared interest in electronic music that was just coming to the fore at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and what could you do with this? And so they decided to form the Eurythmics. So they were a duo um, at, that, at that time. And, you know, Sweet Dreams reached number two in the UK charts. And although it is one of the most successful songs of synth-pop 80s kind of that sort of genre of the mm-hmm. 80s, I suppose you could call it, um, it couldn't reach the number one position. Which song do you think was blocking it?
1: It's going to be something absolutely ridiculous, isn't it?
0: What do you think was the the synth pop, like, still is, you know... Oh, the synth it pop clicked. song. Yeah, yeah, well, just basically, yeah. It was, um, as I said, like, the genre synth pop, like, 80s synth... J- we yeah, go. synth pop from the eighties, which is seen as a genre. The most successful song of that time of synth pop could have been the remix song, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It
1: was blocked by another song. Which song was that? Sexual Healing. No. Okay, would that have been considered synth pop? No, it's more R and B, no. isn't it? With a. It was Drum the ballad
0: machine. of total eclipse by the sorry total eclipse of the heart by Bonnie Tyler.
1: To be honest, I'm not surprised. Well, do you know what? Either one of them could be vying Turn for it. Run.
0: It's freaking brilliant. Have you seen the spoof music video? Yeah, of it yeah. with the cat and the yeah, yeah they change all the lyrics. I haven't
1: seen the cat one. There's well, no, so there's, many there's of cat, them. There's a
0: weird no. The cat just pops up weirdly in it, and then it's it is basically the music video, but the lyrics are different but it's it's like a, it's almost like a kind of lyrical description of what's going on and it's I've ridiculous i've not seen that i've
1: seen spoof videos of it but i've no, not seen that no i think you that. have seen
0: that one but if you the cat is a, it's just, just i just need weird to weird cat youtube
1: it. cat and bonnie tyler you
0: don't need you don't need to youtube it because i'm going to put it in the show notes but it is Bosh. funny as fuck it's brilliant i'll put it in the show notes as i said but um lastly so here are a few facts and i am going to do Annie Lennox and the Erhythmics in more detail in another show because oh that has to be a legend show as well to be fair. a great story to be honest and I really had to hold back from saying too much mm-hmm. um, so according to who sampled sixty three artists have done covers of the version Sweet Dreams by the Erhythmics can you name yeah. five of them
1: Marilyn Manson well yeah I gave that one away yep. gave
0: that to you for free. Tick, bingo. And can I just say, I'm not going to be like Paula and leave you hanging. I'm going to give you the answers. So, oh, I'm going to
1: leave you hanging. Kids, this is a quiz. This is your opportunity to win handmade bug-eye merch. Uh, oh, shit, I've committed to Paula, that now, yeah. haven't I? <laughs> going to be by me. I ain't doing fuck <laughs> all, right. <laughs> okay, so
2: come on. Um,
1: New Velvet Yes. Correct. And I really like that version. Oh, I can't think of any more.
0: Okay, Bat for Lashes in 2008. How did I not know that? I love her. Yola Tango in 2006. How did I not know that? And, the, I mean, there, as I said, there were 63, but I didn't r- recognise a lot of the names on here. But the one that I've put on here, I liked because it made me chuckle because I'm a child. Um, Dildo Brothers in 1997. <laughs>
1: Seems like I'm a child too. I have a question. Like, Bat <laughs> for Lashes and Yo Tengo, did you know they'd covered it? Is my knowledge knew, is just shocking? No,
0: no, I knew, no. It, I did, The thing is, I've, I didn't realise Bat for Lashes did it either. Yo Tengo, I knew about. But, um, like, Marilyn Manson. But, yeah, Marilyn Manson is yeah. such a famous one. But, no, I mean, the thing oh, is, was, re- out of the list of 63, there were a lot
1: of yeah, like, yeah, yeah. bands
0: and like I'd never even heard of. So I've picked the ones that I'd heard Red of. Off. Um, well, apart from as I say, backflashes, I didn't know that that she'd done she'd done that.
1: But um, and the old dildo brothers, dildo Whoa, brothers, didn't know they won that tippy either.
0: So I need to I need to um, Google that, that one. one. Out. Not on a work computer,
1: maybe not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> totally innocent, but there you go. But um, I do have some other 1983 facts for you, Paula. One then, first British breakfast time television show is broadcast in the UK on the BBC but what is it called no i thought it
1: was TVAM
0: no. i'm sure TVAM was first broadcast
1: in 1983 it was broadcast in
0: 1983 um it was called TVAM um but it was not the first show that one did broadcast Ooh. but it wasn't the first one that was one. a rival wasn't it it was it was the the kind of you're doing that so we're going to do one
1: yeah see i saw that one as well uh what could it be called Shall BBC I read- AM.
0: <laughs> Shall I read the question again? There's a hint in here. On, the first British breakfast time television show is broadcast in the UK on the BBC, but what is it called?
1: BBC Breakfast. It's called Breakfast Time. And in, cool
0: the, in, in the description, it said that it was, um, it was casual dress and with bright colours to appeal to all demographics. <laughs> now, what
1: the... Okay. There are only about but, three channels to choose from then. They're so all, if you wear a pair of jeans.
0: Exactly. It's like, you know, yeah, anyway. Um, okay. The the other human, this is a bit dark, this one, but mm. this might this might hark back to your facts about the... Um,
1: the old death penalty. Well,
0: yeah, I think this is probably why it was uh, a topical thing at that time. So dismembered sets of human remains are found in a block of flats in Muswell Hill in North London. Yeah. Thirty-seven-year-old civil servant Dennis Nilsson is arrested on suspicion of murder. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was a Scottish serial killer who murdered at least twelve young men and boys between nineteen seventy-eight and nineteen
1: eighty-three in London. Yeah, I read about that. So
0: that's that was a disturbing thing. Was Stuart
1: Sutcliffe involved in that?
0: No, no, a he's lad. a separate separate serial killer separate but but the weird thing is like there's a period between kind of 75 and 85 where all of the most like famous serial Mm. killers Mm. all were active Um, and some of them even in the same cities and we've never seen anything like that since
1: and it's just such a weird um or people have got better recovery oh i don't even want to go down that road Wow. Leave it. Next, let's, pack. let's go on let's to the next issue. This, this is
0: not a true crime podcast. I love true crime podcasts. My favourite murder?
1: Drunk Women Solve Crimes.
0: Um, who else? Red Handed, they do good ones. Unsolved, Sword and Scale, great. So, uh, yeah, all these good but podcasts. But don't be
1: like Angela and listen to them when you go night running.
0: I don't go night running and listen to them. That would actually give me a heart attack. So. No, seriously, I have to have breaks from listening to true crime because I do freak myself out. But I find that when I'm going running, the only thing that that kind of motivates me (laughs) is this true, like a really good true crime podcast that's terrifying, and and it just makes my heart beat and I feel frightened, and I actually just run. Really, I've done my best times running.
1: It's a terrifying um, yeah, podcast. Yeah, really
0: fast five K's because I've truly been a bit freaked out by what I'm listening and yeah, I just want to get home. Um but anyway It's <laughs> probably not the best thing to do when you get older to just drink lots of alcohol and then think you're healthier going on runs and do things to almost give you a heart sack. Anyway, next fact next fact and there's only, you know, a couple more three more because one of them I've already given you. Um so Red rain falls in the UK caused by what?
1: Some kind of iron oxide.
0: It was caused by sand from the Sahara Desert.
1: Damn, Gina. Didn't but people know that. were
0: totally freaked out, um, even though there had been warnings and things mm-hmm. like this. Um, but given there are only three channels, not everyone's got a TV.
1: Everyone's got a freaking It radio.
0: looked like the sky was raining blood, essentially. Wow. So uh, that was quite freaky. and The that devil happens, is coming. Yeah, the devil is coming. Um, so the first episode of historical sitcom Blackadder was broadcast on BBC One. And then also, and this isn't a quiz question, this is my final one. I did I did want to say, you know, it was the first year of the compact disc, but I said that earlier. But um Brinks, I said that earlier as
1: well. Boom.
0: Boom. Brinks Matt Robbery in London. 6,800 gold bars worth nearly 26 million were taken from Brink's map vault at Heathrow Airport. Only a fraction of the gold was ever recovered and only two of the men were convicted of the crime. Wow. Some people had Wait, a happy, jolly time. 26 million? 26 million, which back then... So no, consider money, now, consider... Yeah, today's money. Consider
1: this, a pint cost 80p. If you buy a Pocho craft point pint at the moment, it can cost eight quid.
0: No, I know. So I'm saying so that was the value. Ah, so it's at like that time.
1: 2.6 billion easy by
0: That's,
1: now. Yeah. Maybe 26 billion.
0: It's just, yeah, someone's gone and bought probably all the tourist attractions in London were bought by that by some someone who fled to a different country and Well, if you are that person, you can support Would you us. Guys-
1: you can support us by joining Patreon. <laughs>
0: You can join us on Patreon. We've got great content for you. Um, And, uh, yeah, we might even teach you how to hotwire a car or something And I might
1: even make you one of my quiz prizes myself. (laughs) (laughs) No, but in all serious notes, we do have a Patreon.
0: Yeah, this show does actually cost us money, believe it or not. People laugh and they go, really, you mugs? But um, it does cost us money to host um, shows. So any donations or well and truly welcome We the Patreon sites, patreon.com slash bug eye. And we have things like we give away demos of new music. We have funny pictures and videos on there. You get discounted tickets and early bed tickets to all of our gigs and also, um, our live podcast show that will be happening. We hoped it would launch this year, but will be happening next for year next. for next year, but also exclusive merchandise, and all kinds of all kinds of stuff. So do head over there and have a look. But if you do have a story or a new music that you want us to play, drop us an email at Bug Eyes Rock Pop Rambles, or come and have the chat with us on Twitter at Bug Eye Band or at Facebook on Bug Eye Music and Instagram is also Bug Eye underscore Music. We've had great stuff recommended to us recently. Yeah, awesome. Really, really good stories. People keep sending us articles of. You know themed things, and can you cover this, and can you cover that and um, but it's not yeah. just
1: it's not just stories we're looking for like if you know a great band, maybe someone you know, someone local to you, someone you think we should be playing, do get them to get in touch and do get them to drop us a message. we're always up for listening to good good new music
0: exactly exactly and um yeah just and and talking about listening, thank you to everyone that's tuning in. Our last show had over one thousand streams in like an hour. Of it being released, which I am so completely blown away I mean, by no. that. So um, so seriously, thank you so much. It means the world to us because we started this as a bit of fun and yeah. didn't think anyone would listen. And you are listening. And it does mean mean the world to yeah. us. So a shout out to absolutely everyone that's listening. Pop us a message and say hello. I'd really love to know who you are. Actually, and where you even, are. Where you are. And and, what you love. Yeah, what you love and what you hate about the show.
1: (laughs) And in life in general.
0: Anyway, so I guess that's it for another week. So thank you for listening and over and out.